This morning I want to begin by telling you a phrase, and it's kind of a striking phrase, that was said in concentration camps, and one in particular. And the phrase goes like this. There is only one way out of Auschwitz, through the chimney. I want you to think about that phrase for just a minute. There's only one way out, the chimney. 1.1 million people died at the camp during World War II. 90% of them Jewish. What a travesty. What an egregious act against humanity to think that that could happen in a modern age. But there was a man by the name of Oscar. And he joined the Nazi party in 1939 and he was a shrewd businessman. He was always looking for an angle on how to get ahead. He was a womanizer. He was a chain smoker and even a drunk. He was described as, quote-unquote, not a virtuous man in the customary sense of the term. He cheated on his wife, and he was known as a carouser. But yet, he accepted the slave labor of the Jews in his enamelware factory. And it was there that he connected to the people that worked for him. Then he strategically created an ammunition factory in Czechoslovakia. And it was there he purposely made faulty ammunition for the Germans. Purposely. Not ammunitions that worked, but ammunitions that wouldn't work in the war. And it was there that the Jewish people found safety and refuge. He could not stand the inhumane savagery of the Nazi party. And because of Oskar Schindler's efforts to thwart Nazi bloodlust, 1,500 Jews were saved, 300 from Auschwitz. And now there are 7,000 people in this world that are alive, descendants, because of Schindler's list. Because of his list of salvation. He was an unlikely hero. When people saw him and saw what his character was like, they thought, that guy's not a hero. And it was under that guise that he became a hero. He was an unlikely hero, but he was a hero nonetheless. And one of the survivors remarked about him. They said this, Not only did he save the lives of 1,500 Jews, he saved our faith in humanity. Unlikely. God can use the unlikely hero, can He? And today we're going to study an unlikely disciple of Jesus. And some would even say an unlikable disciple of Jesus. But what we find in the calling of Matthew, the tax collector, is an insight into the essential character of who Jesus is. The first thing I want you to think about is, number one, the importance or the non-importance 
of Christianity. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. Listen to this. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if it's true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Think about that. If it's not true, if Jesus' words and His resurrection and His claim on people's lives is not true, then we should reject it outright because it has no worth. It's a lie. Who wants to believe a lie? But if it is true, then get ready. Because that obligates me to do something. But the only thing it can't be is this moderate thing. That's where we want to put it, isn't it? That's where our culture wants to put Christianity, is in this moderate position. Right? But the claims of Jesus Christ occupy no middle ground. It does not ride the fence. It is not neutral, tentative, or ambivalent. Christ's call on our life is utterly, absolute, complete, perfect, and entirely, thoroughly true. In fact, you could say it is a matter of eternal life or death. And it's in that absoluteness of Jesus is where we find transformation. It's in His absoluteness that we find the assurance. And we're going to get to that. But the first thing that Matthew encounters, the tax collector, is the absolute Christ. It says in verse 9, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. Now, if you were going to call men to be your disciple, you wouldn't go in the first century and go to the tax office. This wasn't the seminary. Where do we get our preachers? Where do we get our ministers? We, we like them to be qualified, don't we? We like them to have degrees. We like them to be educated. We like them to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to come sometimes from a certain pedigree. But Jesus called a man from the tax office. And if you know what the, what the idea about the tax collector in the first century was, you know that the tax collector wasn't popular. Now, those three letters, IRS, don't ring well today, do they? But for Jewish people, this had even more weight to it because Jewish people saw the tax collector as someone who had deserted their people. You see, Matthew preferred to work for the occupying power, he preferred to, walk, to work for the Romans than to have his place in Jewish life. Because if you were a tax collector, you yielded your Jewish life. You yielded your place in the synagogue. You couldn't enter the synagogue. You couldn't enter the temple. You were considered unclean. And so Matthew chose greed over his people. Now, what do you think that that makes Jesus popular? But he saw something in Matthew that we can't see. He saw something in Matthew that the Pharisees could not see. 
And there Matthew was kind of in a toll booth. In a tax office, he was in a particular place where trade routes, important trade routes would cross. And when he was there, he could put a tax on the goods that were there. And so the tax collectors had regulations. But one of the things that they could do is is that when they began to appraise the goods, is that they could inflate the price of the goods. And because when they inflate the price of the goods, guess what happened to their back pocket? It got fuller. And so tax collectors were known as greedy people. In fact, when John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, 13 says, came upon the tax collectors, he said, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Jesus, when he was talking to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Zacchaeus told him, half my goods to the poor I give, and I will will give fourfold to any person I've defrauded. And so the idea was, is that a tax collector was unlikable. And not even unlikable, but unlikely to be very religious. Does greed... Is greed a powerful deterrent on character today? Remember Jesus, He said Himself, it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Because we begin to care for the the world and the things of the world. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And Matthew was suffering from greed, most likely, because he had yielded his place as a Jewish person to work for Rome. But he encountered the absolute Christ. The Christ who knew His heart. The Christ who knew what He was capable of doing. The Christ who knew His potential. And it's in that that Matthew began to find transformation. How was He transformed? It was through discipleship. When you say, what's discipleship? It's real easy. Two words. It's in the text. Two words, follow me. If you want to know what discipleship is, it's encapsulated in two simple words that Jesus says, follow me. And so the tax collector Matthew is confronted with the absoluteness of Jesus Christ. Did he begin to bargain? That's what he did for a living, right? I'm sure he was good at bargaining. Did he negotiate? But there is absolutely no negotiating with Jesus because he has an absolute call on your life. And Matthew began to understand this. Other disciples didn't necessarily get it. Remember, teacher, I will go wherever you go. One person said. Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus questions the disciples and says, are you sure you really want to follow me? Because guess what? I don't have a place to sleep tonight. That if you follow me, you're going into unknown territory. In fact, right after that encounter with Jesus, the next, next scene is on a boat where the disciples sail with Jesus through a storm. 
says, follow me, Jesus says. And it's in his absoluteness that we find assurance. Let me ask you this. Who are you following? Let me, let me see your Twitter feed. Anybody got Twitter? You know what I'm talking about, Twitter? Well, we follow all kinds of stuff. We follow the news. Facebook, yep, we got that too. Are you following the media? Are you watching the news? Are you following the media? Are you following your peers? Are you following yourself? Are you following the financial trends and markets? Are you following what's fashionable? There's lots of things to follow in this life, aren't there? And I'm not just saying that all that's bad. I'm just saying there's lots of things to follow in this life. But let me tell you, ask you this question. Do those things change? Does the markets change? Does power change? Does the media change? Hey, tomorrow they're going to sell whatever network you watch. Someone else. All those things change. But guess what? Christ is absolute. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in fact, when Peter was asked, he asked the question, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. All of those things that change and all of those trends that change, none of them have the words of eternal life, do they? There is no absoluteness in anything other than Jesus. If you don't believe me, let me come talk to you in 50 years. And let's see how much you've changed and how much I've changed. Because we're going to change. This town is going to change. Our lives are going to change. But in Christ, there is an absoluteness. And that absoluteness is the truth that calls upon our life. And then the other question is, who are you following? Well, where are you going? Remember Jesus said, the blind lead the blind. And where do they end up? They end up both in the ditch. But it's only in this absoluteness that transformation can happen. It's only when I understand that Christ indeed has a call on my life. An absolute call. And because of that, I can begin to obey and transform. Luther said it like this, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. And that's a lot of the religion that people are given today. A religion that costs nothing, gives nothing, and suffers nothing. But when we confront and encounter Jesus, He has an absolute claim on our life. And because of that, I realize that I need to change. What happened to Matthew, the tax collector? In verse 10, it states, And so it was that Jesus sat at the table of the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Him and His disciples. What Luke tells us, and Luke is that actually Matthew is the one that threw the banquet. Matthew doesn't, in the Gospel of Matthew doesn't reveal that. Maybe because Matthew is being humble. But he's the one who throws the banquet that day. That very same day. So he invites all of his friends. And they're just like Matthew. They're tax collectors and they're sinners. So guess what the tax collector is transformed into? 
a soul collector. He wants people to know Jesus. He has encountered the Lord. He has encountered absoluteness. And because of that, he begins to spread that love to those who are around him. Jesus described his kingdom as a banquet. Remember in Luke chapter 14, listen to this. A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are ready. Look what happens. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. Here they were given this blessing. And they began to make excuses. I have bought a piece of ground. And I must go see it. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm going to test them. I ask you that I may be excused. Yet another said, I have married a wife. And therefore I cannot come. He, he saved the, the strongest one till the very end, right? I got married. I got a wife. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And he said this, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Master, it is done as you have commanded, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my, my, my house may be filled. Look at verse 24. That none of those who were invited shall taste my supper. The ones who refused the Lord were now refused. You see, you can't reject the banquet and taste the supper, can you? You can't offer excuses and reject the banquet and, and expect to taste the supper. And what Matthew knew is, is that his friends, the sinners, those who were looked down upon, had hearts that were open to the Lord. And Jesus began to transform Matthew and his friends. And then, of course, he gives us that verse in verses 12 and 13 that we know those that are whole need not a physician, but those who are sick. If you think you're okay, are you going to go to the doctor? But the tax collectors and the sinners knew that they were in need of spiritual healing. And that's where transformation begins. And unfortunately, the Pharisees, with all of their religion, with all of their virtue, Missed the big point. And Jesus says, go find out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That ultimately it's about loving people. And the Christ says, I love the sinners. I love the tax collector even. And I am capable of transforming you. So there was not just one way out of Auschwitz, was there? Through the chimney. But an unlikely hero offered a way of escape for those people. It required for the people to put their faith and trust in Him. That He was going to deliver on His promise to give them safety and refuge. But it also meant that He had to have a bigger love 
for the people than his fear of Nazis. And you know, that's what we need today. As God's people, we need to have a greater love than whatever fear we have of people. Whether it be fear that we're not going to be popular or the fear that people just won't get it, we need to have that love that is greater than whatever fear we have. And when we do that, we begin to live lives of significance. Christianity is false. It's no no importance. We should go home right now. But if it's true, if it's true what Jesus says that we should love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul and our neighbor as ourselves, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Jesus has an absolute call on your life because He created you. He is our Savior. And He wants to know you. There is an absolute infinite importance because the importance is you. The importance is your soul. The importance is your eternal life. Do you believe in Jesus? If you do, then begin by answering those words. And the great thing about answering the call of Jesus is that you can begin to follow Him right where you are. Matthew began to follow Him in the tax booth, in the tax office. You can begin to follow Jesus wherever you are. And that means honoring His teaching and His example. Not only did Jesus become a great teacher, but He left us an example. He became one of us so that we can become like Him. And where there is no discipleship, there is no Christ. Where there is no following Jesus, there is no Jesus. Think about that reality. If there's no one following Jesus in Nashville, Tennessee, there is no Jesus in Nashville, Tennessee. If there is no Jesus in Nashville, Tennessee, there is no love in Nashville, Tennessee. If there is no Jesus in Nashville, Tennessee, there is no forgiveness in Nashville, Tennessee. Where Jesus' disciples are, that's where Jesus is. And that is of utmost importance. Follow Him today. Begin by believing, repenting, and confessing Jesus and be immersed into His body of the church. Or if you're a Christian this morning, you need prayers of healing, prayers of encouragement, we want to offer that opportunity to you. If you have any need, won't you come now as together we stand and as we sing.